Let's face it, getting involved in your local community can be difficult. Where do you even start? How does our local government system work anyway? We're here to help. Welcome to the Austin Common Radio Hour, a weekly show from Co-op Studios. Think of us as a co-op within a co-op. With our rotating cast of hosts, we pop on the air each week to give you the information you need to know to actually understand what's going on in our community and how you can get more involved. Thanks for joining us for this pre-recorded episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour on KOOP. Today we continue our focus on the February 2021 Storm Yuri and its effect on the Texas electric grid system and why it failed. The University of Texas at Austin recently published a white paper called The Timeline and Events of the February 2021 Texas Electric Grid Blackouts. It is available online at energy.utexas.edu forward slash ERCOT blackout 2021. We had the special opportunity to speak with Professor Rhodes, one of the co-authors on the study. Uh, Professor Rhodes shares insights into what caused the catastrophic failure of the Texas Electric Grid. Let's listen to that interview. Welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour here on Co-op HD1, HD3 Hornsby. And I'm your host, John Hoffner, with my co-host, Jane Pulaski, our energy policy host. Hi, Jane. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, How is it in Austin? It's great. Um, summer, finally, they turned the switch, and it is summer now. Nice and hot, and we're catching up with the Northwest. But um, you are remotely calling in from, not Boulder, you're back in uh, Steamboat. Steamboat, yep. Fantastic. All right. Well, Jane, do you have an energy flare to share with our audience today? Yeah, I, I just had a really fascinating conversation with a woman at Southern, Cal- Southern California Edison Electric Utility, and her focus and her team is working on building electrification for the utility and in their service territory. And I was really confessing to her that when I bought the condo in Austin last November, I was grousing that um, it had it was all electric and you know electric cooktop, electric everything. And I had never in my entire life cooked on an electric stove, or at least that I don't remember. And I was really adjusting to it. And she enlightened me that there are just a slew of studies, two in particular that she referenced, one from the UCLA School of Public Health, the other from RMI, both of which talk about the inherent harm of gas cooktops, gas stoves in particular for children and in homes and how dangerous it is and is becoming more so so um, what, sh- what I found interesting was that the, the Physicians for Social Responsibility and the UCLA School of Public Health, they're not, you know, they're not a, they're not a special interest group. This is just based on science and medicine. So um, stay tuned on m- more about <laughs> um, the, the dangers of gas 
in our homes. Uh, so she was trying to make me feel better about being in an all electric home. Good. Stop. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you added that there was a kind of, it sounds like an independent research, not just Southern Cal Edison poo-pooing natural gas since they are electric utility and it could be construed as they're trying to build load by you know, saying that you don't want to have a natural gas stove in your house for pollution and environmental reasons. So, okay, well, we'll, we'll keep tuned on that. And um, thanks for that. And I'm sure our guests, we'd like to get to our guests. We'll have some uh, energy opinions and ideas. And we're really happy to have uh, Joshua Rhodes here from the University of Texas, where he is a research associate, and he's also uh, the founding partner of IdeaSmith, and he works closely with um, Michael Weber at the Weber Energy Group, Energy Institute at the University of Texas. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, we're glad you're here, and uh, we look forward to a fun discussion about things in Texas on related to energy. But before we get to that, we're always interested to know uh, about our guests and a little bit of a profile. So tell us uh, a little bit about your background and what makes you uh, interesting and tick. And when did you kind of decide you were going to focus on energy? Yeah. Um, so I've been, I've been interested in, in conservation and, you know, not wasting things kind of all, all my life, really. I remember thinking, you know, about that, you know, when I was, when I was a young kid, but the, when I really got into energy was when I, um, was when I really started to realize the various, you know, constraints we have in this world. And the actual story that I can, I can point to is after my, um, after my master's, so I, so I have an undergrad in, in, in mathematics and economics, and then a master's in mathematics. And, and after that master's, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I just, moved to Colorado and got a job in construction. Um, but that was in, uh, that was in 2009 and which turned out to be a bad time to get into construction <laughs> with the financial crisis that, um, that happened then. And so, um, but I remember having a conversation with an electrician in a house. I was just, you know, swinging a hammer at that point, but I remember having a, a conversation with an electrician in the house and just asking him, you know, what all he had done in his career, because I was interested in, in energy and electricity. And he said he used to install, uh, he had been laid off installing um, wind turbines in South uh, East Colorado, which is pretty windy, kind of like the panhandle of Texas is. And he said that um, he'd been laid off because they actually couldn't get enough water to mix the concrete to pour the footings for the big for the big wind turbines because the foundation for these for 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 modern wind turbines are massive they're mm -hmm. huge lots of rebar lots of lots of concrete and then so that was my first introduction to constraints in one sector of being constraints in the mind that you know, a water shortage could lead to you know and so i wanted I kind of decided at that point that I wanted to figure out how to, you know, alleviate those constraints, you know, how to, how to, how do we get more clean energy on the system? How do we, how do we do more, you know, stuff like that? And so it, it led me to the University of Texas and particularly the Weber Energy Group, which, you know, studies the energy water nexus or the energy food nexus, or basically, you know, any of our major systems, um, they all run on energy. And so, you know, if one goes down, it can, it can take the other down. And so that's, that led me to that group and um, for me to get, uh, and later on to get my, you know, PhD in engineering to, to study these big, these big macro energy systems. Wow. 
what a journey. So you went from, uh, like you say, swinging a hammer to becoming interested in the whole energy picture, really. And, and specifically, it sounds like you're focused on renewable energy and, and energy conservation, and specifically Texas. Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's um, you know, Texas is an energy state. If you're wanting to study energy and be at the forefront of, you know, the evolution of energy, I mean, Texas is a good place to be. If you are just joining us, you are listening to the Austin Common Radio Hour on KOOP and on the web at koop.org. I am your host, John Hofter, with my co-host and energy policy lead, Jane Pulaski. We are talking with the University of Texas professor, Joshua Rhodes, about a recent study he co-authored about the timeline and events of the February 2021 electric grid blackouts. Now let's get back to that interview. You say in your uh, your bio that you work in smart grids, so maybe you can tell us, tell our listeners, what is a smart grid? Yeah, smart grid is is as lately has become somewhat of a catch-all term for for basically anything that includes an information overlay. So so it you know smart grid can be electric, it can be gas, it can be water. It's it's these mac it's these macro systems that move that move resources from you know where they're um, or grids are, are big systems that move, you know, you know, the things we use in our daily lives from where they're produced to where they're consumed, be that in our homes or into the tanks of our cars or, or, or things like that. Um, the smart grid is essentially an information overlay to that. And so instead of it just having a commodity flow one way, maybe you also have information flowing along with that or information flowing two ways. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, like you have a smart thermostat and, you know, when the grid gets under high amounts of stress, you signed up for a program that allows them to change your thermostat set point, you know, up a few degrees for 15 or 20 minutes to, you know, try to, to alleviate stress on the, on the system to make the, to make sure we have enough power for everyone. So that's an example of kind of, you know, kind of how a smart grid can work, but it, um, it essentially is just, it's like, you know, better information with the, with the things that we consume every day. Yeah. Well, that's a great description of it, and and I think the the issue is that our utility grid and utility systems have been really dumb for a hundred years. I mean, you, you when you think about it, a hundred years ago when we started making the grid and power plants, it was wires and transformers and nothing talked to each other. And so now, like you say, you you can have a, a smarts in it. So really, it, it's almost kind of a a name in itself that you're taking information and being able to. To, um, in, integrate that into the grid. So, that, so that's one of your specialties. You, you, is you, that anything that's your kind of your research for your uh, what you're working on? Yeah. So that's um, so that that's one of my that's one of my specialties, along with just the 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 grid system in in general. So my my focus is really the the Texas electricity grid uh, for my research. So I've been pretty busy since February, <laughs> as you may yes. kind of imagine. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and so I've been you know working on um, you know how how do we take you know what happened in during that time and um, you know you know be smarter about the resources that we have. Um, you know if we ever you know decide that you know we want to you know you know, reduce, you know, carbon impacts of the grid on, you know, on the planet or, you know, any kinds of, uh, you know, rebates, subsidies, any, anything like that. Um, 
you know, policy changes, you know, that's, that's what some of the things that I, that I study for the system. Great. Let, let's, let me ask you, Joshua, since we're talking about the grid writ large, let's talk about the Texas grid in particular, which is something you have an enormous amount of information on. ERCOT is ERCOT. And tell, tell us about ERCOT and its unique structure. Yeah, so ERCOT, which stands for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, is kind of the, the operator of the grid that serves most of Texas. There's some parts of Deep East Texas that are that are not in ERCOT. There's some parts of the Panhandle and then out far west uh, where El Paso is at are, are not in ERCOT. But the heart of Texas, um, the the 90% of you know the energy or the electricity that's consumed in Texas is, um, is under the control of, of ERCOT. Now ERCOT does not own any power plants. They do not own any power lines. Um, they just manage the market that, um, that our power plants and, um, you know, our consumers operate in. So they're the ones who, who dispatch power plants. They tell power plants to, to turn up or to turn down, um, depending on what, you know, demand is doing along with, you know, other, other aspects that, um, you know, that match supply and demand, um, the vast majority of the time, but sometimes we have, now we have some famous examples where that, you know, didn't happen back in, back in February, but they're kind of the, you can kind of think of them as kind of the air traffic controller for, for the grid. They don't own the planes or the runways or anything, but they kind of manage the system. It's a good analogy. And exactly what happened in February? So February was a cascading uh, failure of multiple energy systems. Um, so, one, we need a little bit of background kind of on, on the system before we can talk about how it, um, how it failed. So the, about half of the power plants in ERCOT um, consume natural gas. They, they burn natural gas to make electricity. Um, and um, the rest is made up of, uh, you know, about, or the, and the rest is made up of um, wind, uh, coal, nuclear, and solar, and then there's a couple other little bits here and there at the end. But the, you know, most of our uh, power plants um, consume natural gas, and so what happened in in February was um, you know it was kind of a, was a cascading was a cascading you know failure of multiple systems. So we we lost a lot of our natural gas production out in West Texas. Our production was down roughly about eighty five percent. Um, and we almost exhausted all of our natural gas storage. We had a lot of our um, processing natural gas processing facilities, pipelines freeze. And so we had a good number of our um, natural gas power plants that were not able to actually get fuel. Um, we had some wind turbines freeze up as um, the storm moved through the western part of the state. Um, we had um, we had cooling water issues at other types of power plants like our uh, nuclear, um, and um, we had some coal piles freeze up for some of our, from our coal plants. So we really had almost every single source of energy, um, you know, did not perform the way that we would have liked to have had it perform. Um, but I, I do think our, our thermal fleet underperformed significantly compared to, you know, what we expected from, from, from our other, other fleet. Now with electricity, you have to match supply and demand in real time. And so at the same time as all of that was happening, we lost roughly half of our power plants. 
we had record demand for electricity because if you remember, it got cold for multiple days and snow stayed on the ground for multiple days in a row. And that just doesn't hard, that hardly ever happens um, in Texas. That, you know, that's one of my most enduring memories of that time is, you know, looking out the window the next day and the snow is still there. You know, sometimes when we get snow, it, it you know, we get a dusting, but it, you know, it's gone soon. But this was a multi-day event lasted an entire week. If we had been able to meet all of the demand for electricity, you know, during that time, we would have blown away our summer demand for electricity, our summer peak demand. And, you know, when you think of Texas, you don't think of snow and ice. You think of, you know, suns and cowboys and, you know, all that, you know, hot desert heat, you know, cactus and all that. Um, you think of this, you think of the heat. Um, and that's what our grid is, you know, really built for is that, is that meeting that air conditioning load on, you know, August 4 p.m. on August afternoons when everybody wants to, to cool their house down. But we ended up in a situation where we had a massive amount, we had more demand than we'd ever had in the system at the same time as we lost half of our power plants. And there's just no system, no systems really designed to be able to, um, to operate, um, you know, under those conditions. And so since you have to match supply and demand in real time, if we didn't have the power plants, we had to turn off some of the demand, which means we had to put some people in the dark. Well, so Joshua, you, you mentioned that no system can work that way, but we do have, you know, Minnesota and Chicago areas, and and they operate in and actually significantly lower temperatures than us. So one one of the things, and you've mentioned it, is that the power plants were not weatherized. And I remember, I believe it was as far back as '89, we had the same problem happen. And and the Public Utility Commission came around and said, well, you will fix that. And and maybe you can talk a little bit about why those thermal plants didn't why they had to go down and then I, I, I add on a question I know it's a lot there were, were there certain amount of plants that were down for maintenance problem issue to, to be maintained routinely during that time period as well or did, was that not an issue yeah no there um answer your second question first and then go into the more detailed uh first one so that yes there were um a relatively high number of 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 power plants that were that were offline for for maintenance but because our grid is really set up to meet that summer demand, it's it's typically when power plants do take maintenance. I mean, it's it's you know it's like a car; they have to get oil changes every once in a while, and they can't operate you know while that's happening. And so, a lot of our power plants take maintenance outages in the fall, winter, and the um, and the um, um, and, and the springtime to be to be ready for that for that summer um, demand. In fact, ERCOT mandates that you know power plants cannot take maintenance outages from May fifteenth to September fifteenth because they want everything to be available you know during um, during that time. Um, and then you know while it is true that there are there are you know gas plants, wind farms, coal plants, all kinds of power plants that operate at much colder temperatures and much colder climates. You know, one of the things I would ask them, would they be ready for 100 days of 100 degrees? Yeah, they may yeah, not be. Um, yeah. And so it's like, you know, our, you know, a lot of times those power plants actually have buildings built around them to insulate them during these, you know, the big winters blizzard events that they that they get. The problem is that if we did that in Texas, they might overheat. So mm -hmm. we've got it in the summertime. So we've got to figure out you know, how, what level of winterization is, is, is appropriate because, you know, if, if you going back in the historical record, we did have an issue in 2011, but to really get back to a comparable event, one does have to go back to 1989, but 1989, what, you know, roughly 30 some odd years ago. And so the, the question becomes is like, 
you know, how much money are, you know, if we think this, an event like this is going to happen every 30 years, you know, how much money do we want to spend um, in order to, you know, ward off an event like this? If, if it were something that happened every year, like it does in Minnesota, definitely we would winterize power plants because, you know, that wouldn't be, you know, it, it would be unthinkable to let that something like this happen every year. But if it's every 30 years, that becomes a harder calculus. How much insurance do you buy? Are we willing to pay more for insurance, you know, or willing to pay more for energy 29 years, 29 years out of 30 in order to make sure we have it, you know, hundred percent on that, on that 30th year. That's a question we're going to have to answer is, as, you know, as a society in Texas. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that it's a crapshoot. We don't really know the weather is changing that we do know we could indeed have continually more winters of severity like we did in February. So, so to think that, well, that was a 30 year, like a hundred year flood. Well, we, we don't have to worry about it. it's a hundred year mm -hmm. flood, except those hundred year floods are happening now every five years. So the, the old way of thinking to me is flawed. And we, maybe that's not prudent to base current decisions on what happened 30 years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, we, you know, as we think about, you know, what, what types of weather events we want to be, you know, prepared for, we've been able to look to the past to educate us about the future. But in a changing climate, that's not necessarily the case anymore. And that becomes harder, because like, you know, when you're able to look back to predict the future, you can do that based on, you know, observed data. It is harder looking forward into the future when, you know, when, when we're having to you know, figure out what, what an uncertain future is going to look like. But I mean, you know, the science tells us it's going to be potentially, you know, hotter, drier summers, and we may have more events like this with a wobblier jet stream that allows a polar vortex to reach down this far. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of it is risk and cost analysis, you know, for, mm -hmm. for these power plant operators who are now uh, deregulated, which uh, maybe we'll ask that question in a minute. But, um, you know, so they sit down and they do their analysis. They say, well, it's maybe going to be three degrees for half a day or however many days they do it. Um, do I want to design for that? And that, that's what you're alluding to. And, and how much will that cost to me to winterize it? And so I think that's the issue that, that they have to grapple with. And, and then whether the legislators or public utility commission can force them to do that. Um, and so my question, I guess, is, is do you think some of this has come to the fact that we've been so deregulated for so long um, and, and we're, we pride ourselves like many other states that went de deregulated the utility market uh, and, and it's more competitive. And some people think, well, and I happen to think a, a quite a bit that way is that electricity is a not really a commodity, it's a necessity and, and should be more for the common good. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm also for a mix of competition. So how much of it do you think is, is really because of that risk analysis that's being done by you know, private companies? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I, and, and I, I will say that like, you know, there, there's probably, there, there probably is some to that, but we, we did have other regulated, more regulated markets that also had issues during that time. So if you look at the Southern Power Pool, SPP, which is essentially Oklahoma to North Dakota, all of their utilities um, are, are vertically regulated, although they do operate in a, in a competitive wholesale market, but they were also having issues during that, during that time. And, and to the east of us in Intergy, into East Texas and um, uh, in, in Louisiana was more 
regulated energy, they, they were also having blackouts during that time, not to the extent that, um, that we did. So it, I don't know that it can be fully blamed on, you know, deregulation versus, versus regulation with the Texas energy only market, you know, the, it, it is a relatively new concept in the, in the whole, um, you know, in, in the whole evolution of, of electricity systems. Mm-hmm. And so in the comp, in the, 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 and the, you know, the trick has always been to get the, the, the prices right. Um, it, our market structure does lead to lower average um, electricity wholesale market costs, but and relies on, you know, spikes in price, you know, during, typically in Texas during the summer, um, you know, to send, you know, the signal to, to power plants to be ready to provide power, you know, whenever, um, um, whenever, whenever things get, whenever things get tight, you know, with, with our system, I mean, you know, I, I think one has to take a, in regards to the February event, I mean, I think one really has to, you know, take a look at the, the entire thing, because even if all of our, you know, power plants had been fully winterized, if we had still lost the natural gas system, we wouldn't have been able to, you know, you know, a, a car without gas in the tank is not going to run just like a power plant without fuel is not going to run. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I think we have to take a more holistic, you know, view of it, but I think we need to also take a look at is, do we, do we have the right incentives in place for, for power plants to be ready for, you know, an event like this? And to do that, we have to, fig- we have to figure out how often is an event like this going to happen, you know, and how much does it cost to, um, you know, to do that. And, and some of the research that we recently, you know, put out at the University of Texas, they recently completed a report funded by the Public Utility Commission of Texas, looking at data for, from that event, we actually saw that a lot of power plants, you know, failed before their minimum ratings. And so they, they had a minimum rating that they, you know, were specified for. But if we look at um, when the times of day that they, that they actually failed, they, some of them failed above that. So I, I don't even know if, you know, if some of them even know what their minimum power rate, minimum operating temperature is, um, you know, given the data that we saw. Ah, okay. So by that, you mean that they failed before it got to the, really the coldest temperature. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, may, you know, every power plant has a different rating, but, you know, say they say they were, you know, said they were rated for five degrees Fahrenheit, but they failed at 10 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Right. Right. Okay. Well, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Joshua Rhodes. He's the research assistant at the University of Texas, and he's part of the Weber Energy Group. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to the Austin Common Radio Hour here on Co-op Radio 91.7 FM on your dial. And we come to you all over the world at koop.org. I'm John Hoffner, your host with my co-host, Jane Pulaski, our energy policy host. And we're right in her sweet spot today talking about energy and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas and Storm Uri and all the perfect storm that happened in February um, this year. Um, so, uh, Jane, uh, we have a really interesting guest with us. We have Joshua Rhodes. He is a 
doctorate and he's a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin and a founding partner of Ideasmiths LLC. So let's continue on with our discussion about uh, the Uri storm. Yeah, Joshua, you know, I, I like to say that I'm a recovering English major and I am so bad at math. So I'm in awe of your math um, expertise and just your, your knowledge of the grid. And I, I'm curious, your, your opinion on, I mean, we all know ERCOT is, is ERCOT. It's independent apart from a couple of grids within the state where, um, but ERCOT is ERCOT. So what is, what is your opinion on interregional transmission? If we were able to, to receive and send power to other grids across the country, would that have helped us during URI? And will it help us in the future? Because we know there are going to be more events like this. Yeah, so while Texas is essentially an island of electricity, we do have some very weak connections with other grids. They, um, But they're very small in comparison to how much energy or how much, you know, how much power we're consuming um, really at any given time. I personally am a fan of connection. I think the more connections we have with other regions, it allows, you know, it allows for, you know, cheaper, cleaner resources to, uh, to be able to meet more of the energy demands that um, um, not only here, but, you know, in, in terms of the way Texas think abroad in terms of other states. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, I think the vast majority of the time we could probably be selling a lot of our, you know, cheap, clean energy to to other grids that don't have those resources because we have massive amounts of solar and wind resource in in Texas, um, and sometimes we even have trouble consuming it all ourselves. Um, and so, the the more we're, we'd be able to move that to to market, I think the more that we would build, the more that you know economic activity we could have in some economically, you know, depressed areas out in, you know, West Texas. I mean, I, I really think it could be good. I mean, Texas, it could be good for, for the state. Are those conversations happening? I mean, what, what's the opposition to, um, to, you know, connecting, as you said, to other grids and being able to sell excess power? I mean, well, who could, who could be, a, who could be opposed to that? So there's there's a couple reasons why we're not um, more more fully connected to to other to other grids. Um, it's because of the interstate commerce clause. Because ERCOT is contained within the state of Texas, that means we have less federal regulation overseeing how we do things. So in particular, it's the we're less regulated regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and we're able to make more decisions, you know, locally um, than, you know, decisions being made in, in, in Washington. And so that, that's, you know, one, one of the reasons in, in the way that the grid kind of evolved, if you do kind of look at the, the edges of ERCOT, it, it, they do tend to be in the more rural parts of, of the state with the, with the exception of just, you know, of, of around, of around Dallas. And so it kind of evolved that way. And then by the time, that you know the technology came around to be able to send power over longer you know distances. Um, Texas utilities made a decision to keep things you know within the state to to um, to keep more control. Well, maybe that's not working anymore. And just because it's always been that way doesn't mean that it needs to stay that way. And the resistance to it seems um, 
foolish and irresponsible. There are ways we could strengthen ties with with other grids without being um, without being subject to federal oversight. It gets a little bit wonky, um, but electricity is um, you know is is alternating current. But if we we have these direct current connections um, to other grids, and, and the lawyers have decided that that doesn't count as connecting to other systems, um, to other grids, and such that it you know doesn't. Um, pin us under the, the interstate commerce clause. So we are connected to other grids. We could potentially expand those um, or we could synchronously connect to, um, to other systems. I think that would be, you know, you know, I personally, I think it would be valuable to do so from a reliability, resilience, um, and just a, you know, a general, um, you know, economic, um, you know, point of view. Yeah, I, I like your idea of that we can sell our, our renewable energy to other other markets and other grids. Um, it's interesting because uh, around uh, the, what was it, 1995, Jane, when we had the Infinite Power uh, campaign. And, and at that time, Texas was a net importer of energy. Our, our oil had gone down. It's, it's an amazing time. And that started that campaign that, that actually Jane was part of to to really promote renewable energy. And it was it was declared as the source that we could sell out, we could export it into other parts. And now it's it's amazing with, with our, I guess it's our natural gas and, and fracking, we are back to being a net energy exporter, but even further if we were to connect uh, the grid. So uh, interesting. Uh, so maybe a little bit of a shift here, uh, Joshua. We're talking with uh, Joshua Rhodes from the University of Texas at Austin. University of Texas did a study for Public Utility Commission about about yeah, the so, issue with the ERCOT and the storm. Right. So we we recently, um, you know, I and, and and two others, Dr. Kerry King and Jay Zarnicu, along with you know some uh, faculty over faculty. Um, um, oversee committee, you know, recently completed a report for the Public Utility Commission that took a took a deep deeper look than had been publicly available of, you know, what happened at the individual power plant level, at the natural gas level, like really some of the some of the data that is, um, you know, that's that's protected in non in, in in private, and but we were able to to comment on it to give a you know a deeper understanding of what happened during that week. Yeah. And I think it was in your study, and I, and I could be uh, reading from another, it was another article I read, but that there's a, a, a lot of talk about whether we should go, and this is a little bit wonky, to a capacity-driven market rather than you know, incentivizing, and I think you mentioned that earlier, energy. And would that help a lot with, with uh, future, you know, a bit, avoiding this kind of an issue in the future? So yeah, so so Texas is an energy only market, meaning that the power plants are only paid when they produce energy. Whenever they get on the market and they're selling um, electricity into the into the wholesale market, other other markets have what they call capacity markets, where power plants are paid to exist to be able to provide energy in the future potentially. Um, in theory, one could you know a power plant could get paid to never produce electricity. I don't know that that's ever really happened, but it, you know, in theory, you know, something like that, um, that, that could happen. Texas decided to not do that. And so um, we sometimes allow our prices to go really high in order to incentivize people to build new power plants um, and things uh, and things like that. I, so whether or not a capacity market would have helped, I, I think really would depend on what types of, added, if any, 
um, you know, regulations, regulations or constraints would have been put on those power plants. Would a capacity market have made them, you know, be able to withstand lower temperatures? Would it have made them be able to, you know, have fuel available, whether that's, you know, covering coal piles so they don't get waterlogged or, you know, having on-site, you know, natural gas storage or, or things like that. To an extent that that, you know, that, that a capacity market would not have required extra things above and beyond what we currently have. I don't know that it would have helped in February, to be honest with you, um, because our power plants have to, you know, have to be able to get fuel. They have to be able to operate in temperatures, um, you know, to, to be able to provide the or in those low temperatures if we want to be able to ride through an event like that. Maybe describe a little bit more about you said a, a power plant could be just sitting there and getting paid. So what does a capacity market mean that, that they're paying them for what to actually just be there or how, how does it work? Yeah. So, so there's always been a mismatch in, or, you know, markets have always have striven to bridge the mismatch between the minute by minute fluctuations in the price of electricity and the decade long decisions that it takes to build finance um, and have a power plant available. And so the way that our system works is, you know, power plants get built, they're paid when they produce electricity. Um, and, you know, they have to, you know, make enough money by producing electricity to be able to cover all of those, you know, costs, the financing costs on debt, um, you know, the, the, you know, paying people to be, to be there, to be turned on if they're needed. Um, a capacity market puts an extra layer on top of that and says, we're going to pay you to exist. So you, we want, we want to make sure you're there. So we're going to give you a capacity payment um, to be available to produce energy at a future time. We may or may not call on you, but we deem it valuable enough to have you around for reliability purposes that we're going to pay you um, a payment to, um, to be there. Okay. It's kind of like an insurance policy, I guess one could think, you know, you, you may never, pull on, you know, fire insurance for your house or something like that, but you, you pay for it to be there just in case you might need it. Okay. And, and so a technology like solar and wind, um, does it make it more difficult for them to play in that market? Um, because they're not really thought of as a capacity building uh, technology, but, uh, you know, energy. Uh, so does that going to that market would that penalize uh, solar and wind it it could it could penalize solar and wind you know if they're not able to you know bid into these capacity markets and there there are some there are some other markets that are that are trying out trying to figure out how much of of you know solar and wind capacity are available to to bid into these markets it's typically not you know, 100% of their of their nameplate capacity, like it might be for you know a gas plant or a coal plant or or, or a hydro facility um, or something like that. Um, but to the extent that a capacity market would lower scarcity pricing in Texas, um, it could it could impact um, you know renewables because they do benefit um, from that scarcity pricing um, whenever supply and demand do get tight. Hey, Joshua, talk to us mm -hmm. about solar coming online. I, I saw on oh my Twitter feed yesterday, and I think this was from Doug Lewin, another 500 megawatts of solar coming online um, just in time as Texas begins to heat up. What is the advantage of that coming on right now? 
Yeah, the, the advantage of, of solar is that, um, you know, the Texas grid is built for, for some or, you know, when the sun is out, um, when, it, when, it, when it's hot, which is drives air conditioning demand, which, um, you know, is, is, you know, in residential, residential air conditioning demand is responsible for half of our peak demand in, in, in August. And so it, it drives a lot of that. The thing with solar is that, you know, whenever the sun is driving air conditioning demand, it can also be producing energy, you know, at the same time because solar panels run on the sun. Um, and so having more solar come online just in time for Texas to heat up as, as August is rolling around, I think is, is great for the grid. I think that'll, it'll, you know, it'll do a lot um, in order to, um, you know, make sure that, you know, when, when the sun's shining bright and, you know, we want our air conditioning that, you know, we have, you know, extra power available for that. And I, and I'll, I'll add one of the advantages that Texas has over a place like, you know, California, which has a lot of solar is that Texas, you know, is an east-west state. We have a lot, and whereas California is more of a north-south state. And so while, um, you know, while the, uh, while the, while, while demand is high in the central and eastern part of the state where, you know, Dallas, San Antonio, Fort Worth, Houston, all those, you know, areas are, the sun is higher in the sky out in West Texas where we're building a lot of this solar. And so we can actually produce, you know, more um, during our times of peak demand than, you know, California can, because by the time their peak demand hits, the sun is already starting to, you know, set over the Pacific Ocean. Well, um, Joshua, may, maybe you can uh, comment or present some of the sort of summary conclusions or what you, you found in that study, um, you know, sort of the root causes, and maybe I think there were some suggestions on what to do in the future. Yeah, so, so our study really strove to kind of give a, you know, an, an unbiased view of the facts of, of what happened. Um, we, we split our efforts into, into, into two parts. So we didn't make any recommendations during this. We just wanted people to have, you know, a consistent set of facts while we're debating policy. And we're, you know, we're, we're looking to, you know, do a second report later on that'll have more kind of, of, of recommendations. But, and, and, and a lot of the data we were looking at, you know, some of it had been made, you know, public previously. Um, but there were a couple key things I think that you know we were able to to find given the access to to, to data that we um, that we had. One of them was that um, we so, so so we've talked a lot about how you know we match supply and demand in real time. Power plants you know produce electricity, people consume it. But there are also these um, these programs we call that are demand response programs that you know load or people or facilities using electricity will voluntarily turn off their usage during times of high grid stress because you know you can match supply and demand in multiple ways you can increase supply or you can decrease demand um, to 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 match that perfectly but one of the things we found out was during this event that we actually had some critical infrastructure that were in these demand response programs in this, particularly the emergency response programs or, or ERS. We identified 60, roughly 67 pieces of our infrastructure that were in the fuel supply chain for power plants that were also in these programs meaning that whenever power started to be, you know, was being cut off to people, it was also being cut off to these facilities. And while we weren't able to quantify what that meant in terms of, was it, you know, how many power plants were not able to get fuel because these compressors or processing facilities or whatever were, were in those programs, just the fact that 
we were able to show that, you know, they exist, they, they were in, they were critical infrastructure, yet they had signed up to be turned off when things got tight. Um, I think there's talk about reworking that in the system, not letting critical infrastructure do that going forward. While that week was really bad in terms of economics and prices, it actually could have been worse. Um, if you, uh, listeners may remember um, folks talking about the Public Utility Commission kind of setting the price, um, just setting the price at $9,000 a megawatt hour for that, for that week. If they hadn't done that, if they had allowed the actual market mechanisms that drive price formation um, continue on, we estimate that for one of those days, it could have gone up to almost $16,000 um, mm. a megawatt hour. That week would have meant that that week could have cost about 10% more than, than it actually did. And so while, you know, it was while things were going crazy in the market and it looked like, you know, it was just set at a, at a really high price, I guess things, you know, it, it could have been worse, you know, during that event. One of the third major thing we kind of found out power plants weren't as winterized as they said they were. So there were, you know, there's a survey that goes out to power plants where they say what temperatures they're able to operate down to. Um, and we were able to, you know, correlate with the time of outages and the types of outages that a lot of power plants actually tripped offline above their minimum rated temperature. And so those were kind of the three kind of main things that we were able to find given, given that data. And then we were also able to look more closely at what was going on in the natural gas sector during that time. And I think if this storm had gone on one more day, things could have gotten a lot worse because like our production declined, you know, 85, up to 85% for a few days, you know, preceding this event out in West Texas. And we have, in, in Texas, we have massive storage facilities that store natural gas underground. So we, we get it out of the ground, we move it somewhere else, we put it in a salt dome, and then we pull it out later, like kind of a big natural gas battery. Um, but we were almost completely out of gas um, from our storage facilities. So if we had gone on one more day of this, we might have actually lost more power plants to, to the fuel outages. And then we could have been in an even bigger you know, world of hurt than, than we were. So it, it, this storm pushed us pretty darn close to the edge. I mean, you know, closer to the edge than we, we really ever want to be again. I'm... And uh, closer than I think a lot of people re realize too. I have a friend that, yeah. that works at ERCOT and he said, you know, the most important thing for keeping stability is the frequency, keeping the solid mm -hmm. frequency. And he was saying how it was dropping. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but if it got another unstable for like another four minutes, I think, he thought that they, we might have lost the whole system and then having to black start the entire state could have taken a long time. So. Yeah, that was one of the, the, the scary things because, um, you know, when supply and demand are perfectly matched on the ERCOT system, our, our frequency is stable at 60 hertz. But as supply and demand get out of whack, you know, it can cause frequency to decline. And if, if the frequency had stayed um, at its minimum level that it got to for another four minutes, power plants would have actually started shutting themselves down in order to protect themselves because you can't operate them at a lower frequency for very long. You'll increase, you'll increase the wear and tear so much that you might break something. Mm. Um, and you don't want that to happen. So as a self-protection mechanism, they will take themselves offline. And if that had happened and we had had a cascading blackout, a cascading failure of the entire system, it could have taken weeks, if not months, to bring the entire thing back online, depending on how much damage that the that the that the cascading failure had 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 caused. Mm -hmm. 
for, for, for a whole host of reasons. I mean, it was, we were pretty close to the edge. So Joshua, we're getting close to the top of the hour, but I wanted to you to have, let people know how they can find that report and, and maybe even some other resources that you might suggest to people, you know, to, to get further understanding of the whole issue. Yeah, so so that report can be found on the Energy Institute website, so energy.utexas.edu. Um, it can be it's free and you know available for um, for download. Um, if folks want like a kind of a historical view of kind of how the grid evolved, including the Texas grid, um, for for a more kind of maybe approachable um, topic, there's a, a book called uh, The Grid by Gretchen Bake. It's a, she's a she's a great author um, talking about how the the, the grid evolved and, and, and why it did um, how it is uh, or how it became how it is. Um, so those are um, you know if folks are interested. I think those are some great resources. Great. Well, I guess one other uh, question for our listeners. If people want to get involved in the energy industry or become trained in it or be, be like you, you decided all of a sudden you wanted to study that. What do you think is a route? What, where, what do people study? Where do they go for um, education in this respect? Yeah, so um, I mean, I'm an engineer, so I'm going to be biased towards, <laughs> of course. Um, towards that. I mean, I, you know, there's you know, I think, I think the University of Texas has great energy programs, be it, you know, on the engineering side or on the business side, um, you know, all forms of, of, of energy, you know, from, from, from older fossil and nuclear energy to, to newer, you know, cleaner, um, cleaner energy to, you know, efficiency, you know, how buildings use energy, because those are the biggest, you know, consumers um, of energy to how our transportation system might, you know, be using more electricity and, 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 and less, um, and, and less of that, or in, in less, um, you know, oil and things like that. There's a, there's a, I do think there's a lack of, you know, understanding of kind of, you know, the, the social side, you know, of how we use energy. So I've, I've been talking with a, with a lot of folks lately who have been, you know, approaching our energy transition, you know, from more of a, you know, a social science, you know, side, you know, of things, which I, which I find fascinating, don't fully understand, but I'm, I'm hoping to, to, to come up to, um, I mean, I think, you know, University of Texas has a lot of continuing education and, and, and all kinds of things like that focused around, you know, focused around energy um, as well. But, uh, you know, I, there, there's also, you know, tons of stuff online these days. For that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like that. The social part of it is really critical. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. important for engineers. I, I happen to be an engineer, too. And a lot of the courses I was lucky to take. We're in social stu- social sciences and understanding people because everything that an engineer designs in most cases have people involved in it at one end or the other, mm-hmm. you know, operating it or using your equipment and having to design for people. Um, well, since that leads me maybe to my next question is, tell us a little bit about what the Weber Energy Group and Energy Institute is. Yeah, so the so the Weber Energy Group is a, is a research group within the uh, mechanical engineering dis- um, uh, with the mechanical engineering department within the engineering school um, at the University of Texas. And, you know, we take a look at big systems level energy, um, um, energy, energy, energy matter. So, you know, how much energy does the food, does our food system use? Um, you know, how do we, you know, how do we, you know, get, you know, our, our food from where it's grown to, you know, the, the grocery store shelves, if it needs to be refrigerated or, you know, you know, or logistics, you know, how, you know, how things need to get there, what the, know, what the carbon impacts are for ready-made, you know, meals, um, what the, you know, the water intensity of electricity is, 
you know, basically anything that touches energy um, in our in our society, you know, we look at it um, from a from a systems level point of view um, because we think it's you know it's important you know as we saw in you know winter storm Uri with the you know part of the reason the gas the electricity system failed was because of the gas system failed and and vice versa, and so you know we've got to look at those things from like a consistent um, you know vantage point if we're going to be able to or, or you know a consistent um, you know, point of view, if we're going to be able to, to understand them in, in, in context. And so we try to take, you know, high level looks at, at things like that. And the Energy Institute, um, you know, brings together, you know, the, the, you know, the, the hundreds of faculty across the University of Texas that study energy from different, you know, different points of view, being that, you know, from, you know, oil and gas to, 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 um, to nuclear, to efficiency, to, you know, renewables, all of that, you know, kind of thing. It, it is kind of a house for bringing them all together. Just a final question for Joshua, assuming that the the issues with the grid ends up in a special in the in a call for another special session. I hope that folks like Joshua and his colleagues are able to provide testimony to the legislators to help them understand the the intricacies and the complication and the detail of what the grid and its impact is. Cause it's, it's wonky geeky stuff and it can be out of reach for many of us who just assume that, you know you just flip the light switch and there's the power. So, you know, Joshua, I hope that, I hope they call on you to, uh, to demystify and explain the process so that those decision makers who set the course for the rest of us really understand what, what the issues are and can make good sound decisions. Yeah. I'm happy to help. I'm just right down the street, literally. So (laughs) uh, I'm happy to be available for that. Uh, Good. Well, I think we're out of time, uh, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Joshua Rhodes. He's a PhD and he's a research associate at the university of Texas at Austin. And he's a, founding partner of the of idea smiths llc which we didn't get to talk to but we'll get save that for next time um again thank you so much for joining us and uh keep up the good work thanks thanks for having me it's been great and that's our show for today the austin common radio hour is brought to you by the austin common and co-op radio the austin common is a local news source that helps austinites be informed and make a difference in their community You can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. You can find podcasts of The Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this show. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band with two R's. Uh, that's at Tiara Girl Band. All right, that's our show. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.